Hello, and welcome to another episode of Endeavors. Today, I speak with filmmaker Carl Besai on his new pseudo-experimental feature film, In Her City. That's Carl Besai, coming up on Endeavors. You're listening to Endeavors Radio with your host, from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, Dan McPeak. In the pantheon of great Canadian directors, a few come to mind. Adam McGoyan, David Cronenberg, the great Norman Jewison, more recent exports like Denis Villeneuve, Jean-Marc Vallée, Sarah Pauly, Bruce MacDonald. I'm adding another one to the list. Carl Besai. For years, Carl has been a director and a screenwriter and has worked both in the mainstream and in experimental cinema. His most notable trilogy was the loosely connected series of films Mothers and Daughters, starring the late great Babs Chula, Gabriel Rose, Tantu Cardinal, and Camille Sullivan. Fathers and Sons, starring Manoj Sood and Tyler Labine and Jay Brazeau. And the final in that loosely connected trilogy, Sisters and Brothers, starring Corey Monteith, Dustin Milligan, Benjamin Ratner, Jay Brazo again, Camille Sullivan again, Gabriel Miller, Casey Roll, former guest on this show, and once again, Gabriel Rose. He's also worked on the zombie horror film, Severed, the great film, Normal, Emil, starring Ian McKellen, and most recently, The Leers, uh, which I had the pleasure of speaking with him about back in 2017, starring Bruce Dern, Anthony Michael Hall, and Sean Astin, among others. His latest film is In Her City, which is a series of three to five minute vignettes uh, exploring the lives of millennial women in major North American cities. It is one of the films featured at this year's Whistler Film Festival, which, like so many other festivals this year, has gone virtual uh, and is running from December 1st to December 20th. This interview with Carl uh, will be the first of a number of interviews focusing on the festival. Uh, two others that are coming up are with Niels Mueller, who directed the film Small Town, Wisconsin, starring, among others, Kirsten Johnson of Third Rock from the Sun fame. Uh, also, you'll be hearing from Sophie Harvey and Casey Novak, 
who are director and one of the improvisers in the film Introvert's Guide to High School. Uh, and there are also a couple others in the works. That is the Whistler Film Festival that is on from December 1st through 20th. Uh, and the first in our series of WIF interviews is the great Carl Besai, whose new film is In Her City. This is my conversation with Carl Besai. Yeah. Out in Toronto and did another you play. Still dabble in theater and playwriting? Is yeah, that... I mean, I, I I grew up here, so I moved back home. I'm working in film right now, yeah. uh, d doing locations um, for a for a series that's shooting out here. Cool. Um, still doing theater. Actually, trying to get a web series made right now. All right. Um, so we're we're my partner and I are you know writing grants for that and yeah, yeah. trying yeah. to raise trying to raise thirty grand and you know. So. Battling away the hard scrabble life, I love it. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, you know how it goes. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I know, I know you've got a new film out. Um, yeah. In in her city. Uh, in her city, yeah. It's a, it's a. I don't know if you think you got to see any of it, but it's a, it's a 17 story kind of omnibus series of really short fiction films that kind of string together into a movie, which tells you a little, it's like looking into the kind of cross section of women of a very specific um, generation, sort of in the kind of 18 to 24 zone was where I was sort of picking in particular and uh, across all kinds of different, you know, ethnicities, uh, geographical locations. I sort of picked three cities in North America that I felt were like the, I kind of call them the make it cities, you know, these cities like Toronto, New York, Los Angeles, where everyone who wants to be, you know, get their words out there goes like you. Went yeah. I went to Toronto. I, you know, we're always running to LA or New York or whatever. And so I thought, well, this is, I just see what, you know, young women are up to in these centers and what they're thinking about. And actually started when I was kind of researching this, I had a, bunch of, of characters in uh, Berlin as well. And I just couldn't handle all the volume. It was just too many, it was getting too uh, spread too thin. But a, a side of me, I mean, if I can figure out how to do it, a side of me would like to, to do a kind of Euro, a little Euro uh, comparison film, you know, cause I, I think people from different places have like way different perspectives on things. I really noticed that for example, uh, young women in Europe, especially in Germany, where public funding is there for post-secondary education, they don't have the same mindset as North American uh, people about school, about what you need to do with your life, the pressure from parents, that sort of socioeconomic kind of pressure around schooling. Um, wow, so different. Yeah. You know, we uh, we do see a lot of films that are sort of made up of short stories and vignettes. Uh, yeah. Coffee and cigarettes by Jim Jarmusch is, is one that comes to mind. Uh, I know I know you've you sort of dabbled in this area before, but seventeen stories in an eighty-two minute film is <laughs> is, is is a lot. Um, yeah. 
yeah. you know, that's, that's about, you know, three to five minutes a, a vignette roughly. Yeah. Why, why did you go, go for, go for so many rather than do, you know, let's say three 25 minute stories, for example. Well, originally I was just going to really keep it really small and just think, I even just wanted to find one person. So initially I, I started the exploration because I had, I sort of cast the net in different cities uh, with casting people that I had been working with. So I had a Toronto casting director, a New York casting director, and an LA casting director, different people, different you know, levels of experience and different kind of insights. And I was just asking around, you know, I'm looking for a, a, a discovery, you know, someone, you know, not, not a famous person, but someone who like really does kind of represent, uh, you know, the every person, you know, someone who's just, you know, not, not particularly special because she's on some big show or whatever, but I wanted someone who could act and I wanted someone who had an interesting life so we could, you know, talk about that life and draw on that life to sort of build the story out of, because I didn't want to be this middle-aged white man saying, hey, this is what I think young women are, you know, I'm not, I want to write it. I wanted to kind of draw it out of the situation. And what, what happened, uh, what happened, Dan, was that I, I got, uh, I got, I got into all these meetings, you know, I was going around, I was having these meetings and, you know, people would come in like it was a casting session so they would come in like ready to perform something and I just like shut the lights off and shut the recording units up and just wanted to talk like just you know and what I found was that once you kind of got over the the hurdle of oh I'm not being auditioned I'm not you know I don't have to like say or do anything in particular it's just like the the hair comes down a little bit people like just become you know natural or whatever and I just started these dialogues. And what I found was that everyone, you know, all these people were just different. You know, they were just different. And, and you know, no judgment. It was just like, wow, that's interesting. Oh, you, this is what you do. This is what you're into. Like I met a, a young woman who was, I didn't know anything about live streaming. Like I didn't know it was a thing. I'm just not into it, you know? So I was just like, you do what for a living? I was floored. I was like, so... I gotta maybe do that. I gotta do a story about this. So every every person that came along, there was some little thing that I found kind of interesting. And I thought, wait a minute, I'm thinking about this all wrong. Stop judging. Stop trying to 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 handle it so much. Just go and go and explore. And who knows what the movie's about? Who knows what the movie's gonna be like? I mean, honestly, it was like making fiction in the machinery of the documentary. If that makes any sense. So yeah. in the end, I had. Uh, this mass of people and I thought okay I'll break this into three weeks I'm gonna shoot for a week in LA and then I'm gonna fly across and shoot for a week in New York and then I'm gonna fly up and shoot for a week in Toronto I have like relationships in these cities I've got people I like to work with in these places whatever so it was like logistically I could kind of pre-plan because I'm pretty familiar with the places and I had help um, logistically I had to pre-organize all the the, the venues, the places where, you know, elements were taking place. You know, the, the young uh, woman who does stand up in Toronto at the end of the movie, you know, she, we had to find a place that was like a shitty little comedy club, but, you know, she knew the guy that she does shows there. And she actually was in charge of bringing in um, an audience, right? Cause it was like, we were gonna simulate a, a live performance uh, she's like, yeah, don't, don't worry about it. I got lots of friends. I'll, I'll get people to come. And then no one came. 
you know, so <laughs> we're setting up to do this thing. And I thought, okay, well, let's just go with that. Like, let's just go with that. That's what happens. You know, she's a young, nobody comic. Uh, nobody's there. A couple people are listening to her. What's going on? I mean, and that's kind of real, you know? So I love the way the film was kind of a mix of fiction and planning and kind of, not, I wasn't writing in the sense that we wrote story outlines, but everything that was actually happening on the ground and being spoken or, you know, being determined was kind of up in the air. So uh, how much improv would you say? Oh, oh, it's all, all, all improv. Yeah, there's no, there's no like script. I mean, so, I mean, and some of them, so, like, here's another really interesting i mean it's just i love this kind of filmmaking because i call it like exploratory you know there's a little bit of an experimentalness to this film you know this is a, a hodgepodgey kind of movie right it's not a a, a a particularly structured film you know it's, it kind of rambles you know some stories you're going to like more than others some you're going to relate to more than others but i think that the overall impression it makes is this gives you this wonderful kind of taste uh, insight into a kind of generation, you know, love it or not, you know, there's just like, these are some preoccupations that I was hearing about. And these are some things that these young women wanted to talk about. But in the case of the young uh, actor in New York who plays um, the, the, the girl who goes off to see her grandma in Chinatown, uh, her actor's name is Stephanie Gong. The, the character was Michelle in the, um, in the, in the film. So Michelle, we knew uh, we knew where her apartment was going to be. We knew where we were going to go to Chinatown. We knew we were going to go meet her grandma, but we didn't have a, a good line on a, on a Cantonese speaking grandma for her. So we were sort of struggling to find someone who would, you know, play ball. And these had to be people who were like okay with improvising and it being kind of this free form. So that was a bit of a mystery. And then secondly didn't really have a big plan on who her friend was going to be. We just, I needed her to have a friend, so someone she could dialogue with that gives us kind of the setup of how she's feeling about her place in the world. And so my casting director was also, you know, helping me with the production stuff in New York. She brought along this uh, girl named Zoe Oliver. And Zoe Oliver was this young actor, like, I think she was like 19 or 20. She's just like, oh, she's good. She'll be great. She'll, she'll be a lot of fun. The girls had never met, right? And so they, you know, step into this apartment in this little, you know, little kind of groovy little hipster apartment in Brooklyn. <laughs> and then they, they have to sort of be like rapport old buddies. And so we were joking around about the movie Francis Ha, you know, this Greta Gerwig film. Wasn't my favorite movie, I'm going to say. But, you know, it did speak to a generation, right? And so the characters of Francis and Michelle in the movie Francis Hobb, the two best friends who, you know, sit and yak in, in Brooklyn apartments the whole time, whatever. So I was kind of going on about this movie and how it kind of irritated me just as a point of conversation. And so these women thought, well, we're gonna do this. They just did you off it also because we love the movie. And so they made their names Francis and Michelle, like in the movie. And uh, and then everything was just improvised. And the, and the the young woman, the African-American girl, Zoe, who plays Francis, was, who was just, just someone we met on the day. That day of shooting, she was so fun and so engaged and so great. I thought, you know, how would you feel about if we do your story, 
you know, and we kind of do the flip where now Michelle's coming to, to your place and chatting with you or whatever. So we kind of set all that up kind of in the moment while we were kicking around in New York, you know, adding scenes to our overloaded schedule. And, you know, rah, rah, like these are really talented young women who are kind of fearless and funny and just sort of do their thing. And you just, yeah, I just, my job as a director is to listen. I know it doesn't sound like I ever do that because I just talk all the time but it's to listen and catch, you know, and maybe I guide a little bit. Like I, I know, okay, well, if this happens, then we'll get something dramatic out of this. You've got to have story beats, but letting them kind of be free and then editorially sort of trying to rein it all in. That's why some are really short and some are really long. It just depends, you know. We, we are seeing a lot more films now being made about influencers and, and Zoomers, yeah. you know, whether it's on TV or film. I'm curious why you decided to to focus exclusively on on female females of that generation. Oh, well, that was kind of a, I mean, in a way, it's kind of a nod to the zeitgeist, right? Like, so we're in this moment where you know the the, the female voice is 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 you know wanting you know to be heard. I mean, I grew up in the '70s, and in the '70s, you know, feminism wasn't invented like five years ago. You know, what I mean, the <laughs> '70s was like it was hardcore. And I'm the son of a, of a, of a woman who was a single mom. And she was like, she was hardcore. And my mother, she didn't take shit from anyone. And, uh, you know, her dining, you know, dining room table was always full of, you know, other strong, willful women, you know, and I grew up like with that. It was like women had a lot of power in my childhood, you know, but then you see the way in which uh, culture and society and economics have kind of created these boxes that people get stuffed in and you know the breakout from that box that happened in this sort of me too moment set a big wave going right it really did and i have a young daughter right i have a daughter she's just 13 just starting high school and she you know hangs out with her friends and they're all on their phones and all this stuff and i just started thinking a lot about that milieu you know that generation that moment and i mean in, in, in a way i was inspired by that i just i wanted to to explore something that had a relationship to my own child in my own understanding of her, but I felt it was easier to push the age up a little bit into young adult because it's then there, that's a really important time, right? 18 to 25, you're setting the, the foundation for what you're going to go off to be or to do. And, um, and I like that. So it's a, it's a pivotal time. And, um, you know, everyone's got a story. You know, in, in the, in the description on, on the, Film Festival website, it, it talks about your background as an experimental filmmaker and how you you can push the boundaries a little bit. Do you do you consider this an experimental film or, or how do you define what experimental is? Well, I mean, real experimental film to me is much more uh, visually experimental. You know, to me, I don't consider this like, a you know, a, a Stan Brackage kind of experimental film is not, you know, this is, this is essentially, this is, this is narrative filmmaking, but uh, I am definitely interested. You know, we talk, we've been talking for years, pretty much the entire 21st century. We've been talking about new technology, new technology, new technology. But the truth is really you go on any movie set and it looks exactly like it did uh, in the 1980s and the 1990s and that, you know, still a million people milling around really big pieces of equipment camera teams like enormous equipment enormous labor power you know and so and i'm not 
dissing that. There's a, a structure, kind of factory structure that has been the kind of standard way of making movies. Now, that's how you get this beautiful production value. That's how you make these big Netflix shows, whatever. But I'm less interested in that. I think that the new technology offers you an opportunity to move more seamlessly between what is real, what is the real world, and what is the world of fiction. And I mean, when I'm shooting in New York, uh, I, I'm shooting with like, I'm really small. Like we're, we found a way to work to really pare things down so we could be invisible, really invisible. So, you know, everything that happens dramatically is happening in real life, in real time, in the real world. I know enough about filmmaking to know what to shoot and what not to shoot, what's going to be able to even look even clear and what's going to be a legal problem and, you know, how to deal with the location and whatever. But the truth is, you know, out of my cell phone, uh, you know, I'm getting like fantastic 4K footage out of my uh, SLR that I'm using. I mean, you know, the, the, the quality is really pretty good for, for this kind of stealth cam. And, um, and, you know, what can you do with this sort of thing? So to me, like, not every movie needs to be made this way or wants to be made this way. But if you're, if you're talking about, I mean, I also have to say that the, in, the, in, the industry, the way the industry works, the structure of the industry, it's not easy to get a lot of financial support for films without movie stars. It's just not, you know, ask anyone, you know, they're like, how did you get your movie made? Um, you know, you, you, you're lucky, you got an investor, you got a grant, you had some friends, uh, unless you've got like marquee people in the film, it's really tough to get people to put money into these things. And, you know, also with budget comes responsibility, the watering down sometimes of the idea, safe choices, you know, no one's going to give you a pile of cash and say, hey, you know, go off to uh, LA, New York and Toronto and fuck around with the, with these people we've never heard of and see what you come back with. <laughs> Why shouldn't you? You know, that's how yeah. I, feel. I feel a bit like, yeah, this is a, I mean, that's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in these, in these deep dives into the unknown for me. Right. How, how do you think the, the pandemic and this current situation we all find ourselves in is going to, to change the industry, both from a, just from a practical creative model, but also from a distribution model, you know, cause we saw what Warner just did with HBO max, for example. Well, I mean, it's certainly everything sped up in terms of the proliferation of, of online. I mean, it has, I think that, you know, film festivals are madly scrambling to try to figure out how to be relevant in an age where people aren't really going to the theaters. I don't think it's just because of a pandemic. I actually think that you know, this has been slowly on the rise for a while. You know, people just, they're not, they're, they don't see the point in like making the effort to go that far and spend that much money to go and see something they'd rather see, you know, the way we're looking at our screens right now. Um, so, so this is just kind of put it into hyperdrive. It's, I think it's sped things up. I mean, the streaming uh, reality is that uh, the power, if you will, is in, a really, really, really concentrated set of hands right now. So um, I think that what's good is you see like these fabulous deep pockets, uh, like the Netflix pockets, putting enormous amount of, of stuff on the screen. And the on the on the plus, you get shows like The Crown, which are, you know, you can't 
I can't say anything bad about that show. I, I think the acting's incredible. I think the production design, the, the level of detail, the scale, I mean, the, the nuance, I, I think it's incredible. You couldn't do a work like that without those deep pockets. But independent film, I mean, you're not gonna see a lot of independent film in the theaters. It's not gonna happen, you know? So these, these uh, technologies are, they're providing opportunities and they're taking opportunities away. But I, I think it's, you know, you, can, you can't say, oh, it sucks. If, you, if you're a filmmaker or you're a creator, you're a creative person, you, you, you take what is out there and you kind of look into it. You have to. Yeah. I mean, that's what filmmakers do. That's what artists are supposed to do. You know, and another thing we're seeing, I think, especially in the age of streaming, is we're doing away with the, the, the 22-minute half hour. A lot of shows are becoming shorter and shorter and shorter, yeah. 5, 10, 12 minutes, because people's attention spans are, are becoming shorter and shorter and shorter. How how easy do you think, as someone who's made sort of a, a vignette film, how easy has it been to, to adapt to the, the changing sensibilities of a society? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's a great question. I mean, I don't get TikTok, for example. I just don't get it, you know? And, and, uh, and the whole influencer thing, to me, smacks of corruption. There's something about, you know, uh, oh, I'm just on my own volition. I'm just out with my kids, you know, having a nice picnic, but you're, you're, you're showing them in certain kind of clothes and elements that you are being paid to kind of push to your million trillion followers. That seems crazy to me, you know, um, but uh, it is what it is. You know, people have short attention spans. I mean, I have trouble getting my own kids to watch a whole movie, you know, so I, I think the vignette approach that I took with this generation, I think speaks to that generation a little bit, you know? Um, so, but do I personally, uh, I think the, 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 let's say the full length narrative movie. I mean, I think it's still uh, the, the, the sort of two hour movie or two hour story is still a great, um, it's still a great format. Uh, we use it still in theater. We use it in, in cinema. Uh, even the best TV, like I love these prime suspect shows from the past where they would do a series, but it was a series of movies. They were literally like each case was a two hour, you know, presentation. Um, I do think that series gives us the opportunity to, to dig a little more deeply into a story, looking at something like the crown again. But what I hate about series is their job becomes keeping you in, not taking you to a, through a story, just keeping you kind of on the hook. So you never really, it's so easy to bog down. Like I used to love The Walking Dead. And then after a while, once they cleared out all the graphic novels, and it was like, you know, they're going into, you know, season after season. I mean, it's just how, I mean, I'm sorry, Rick, I'm done now. <laughs> enough, you know, well, can't, can't keep at it. You know? What does it say about our society then that, you know, the sort of, I guess, the t the two touch points for, how long something should be are, are either, you know, 10, 15 minutes yeah. or, or two hours. It, it doesn't seem like there could, could be anything, right? Why not? Yeah. 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 Um, but, you know, going back to this note on, on, you know, you, you mentioned TikTok and I remember reading a story about Facebook years ago about, you know, why people share as much as they do. And it's, it's yeah. because I think they, they need to feel a sense of, 
belonging yeah. or acceptance in a world that is that where they can be so easy easily ignored or or, no, or, 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 or to yeah. the side yeah yeah that's so true it's so sad to me that something as beautiful as that sentiment which i think is a very human sentiment has been corrupted by this data mining that's really behind all of the great uh, platforms in the world I mean, I've been listening to this incredible podcast. The CBC does these Massey lectures every year. And I don't know if you're interested, but you check it out on their, on their app. But it's, a, it's this year's Massey lectures. Um, a really smart guy from U of T. And he's really just talking about the way in which, you know, we are, you know, becoming like cattle in a great abattoir of data mining. You know, and there's huge money in it. And, you know, there's a high purpose and a low purpose to every app. The low purpose is the thing we think we're using it for, to talk with our friends. The high purpose is to know exactly what Dan is doing at any moment right. and selling that info to the highest bidder, which is grotesque. We're going into the matrix, Dan. <laughs> well, I, I'm curious if, if you see sort of any correlation or spillover in terms of what's happening with the pandemic, because people, yeah. you know, want to be heard. They don't want to be controlled. And so they're rebelling perhaps against things that they don't necessarily need to be rebelling against like you know wearing a mask or yeah. you know or, or, or not getting vaccinated do you do you see sort of any correlation at, at all in in terms of how we're acting and, and reacting as a society i don't know I, I i just i think the pandemic you know because it's forcing us all inside and we're doing all our work the way we're working right now i mean i've spent in the last three days so much time talking to people on the computer on one hand it's kind of amazing you know on the other hand it's kind of frustrating that all of us are putting all of our energy into a machine and we're being um, we're being gathered we're being gathered and monitored and sold in a way you know I mean, this is the, you got to remember, I'm not pretty old. You know, when the internet first started, it was like a, it was a, a, an academic tool. It was a, it was the, it was this golden age of you know, universal access to information. And we would be, we would be in this kind of panacea of, of sharing uh, information. And it turned into a great big ad, you know, and now it's like, it's even more insidious. You know, we're just product, we're product. Yeah. The, the Googles of the world are making, they don't, you know, no one cares uh, what you do. They just want to know what you're doing for the purposes of their, of their mind. And it's crazy. It makes me crazy. It's so weird. But what, you know, we have to keep figuring out how to uh, connect with each other and move forward and, and, you know, and find positive outcomes. And what I will say is that just by accident, because of the timing of making this in her city movie, uh, I, I did all the research and development after I'd met the initial people once live in a, in a very, you know, rushed and simple way. I maintained a relationship and developed my understanding of their lives over a period of about three months where I would be on every day talking with one of my characters about just stuff like, like we're doing right now. And I'd make notes and I'd record uh, I used uh, Skype, I used FaceTime, whatever was going. Zoom wasn't a thing just then. And uh, in fact, the recorder I used, the, the, the audio recorder is a Zoom recorder. The same company, but it's just like it's an audio unit. So I'm recording all this stuff, making all these notes. And ironically, this happens. 
And the, so two things, the way in which the film is going to be seen is uh, by virtue of this pandemic is through the, this medium, but also the way it was made was through this medium in a way. So, I mean, I can certainly, you know, have relationships with people anywhere in the world, um, get to know them, get to understand them, develop something with them. But at a certain point, there is no replacing the live interaction, I don't think. And, uh, and one hopes we get back to it. I mean, what do you make of of the 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 Warner HBO Max deal that that just went down? A lot I, of I didn't catch the. I'm a little out of it there. So Warner Brothers announced that so for their entire 2021 slate, which is 17, uh, which is 17 uh, films, wow. um, they're going to be releasing them simultaneously in theaters and on streaming HBO Max, free for 31 days wow. with HBO wow. Max subscribers, and a lot of especially a lot of smaller theater chains are, are crying foul because they're saying it's going to ruin the movie going experience. We're going out of business, but I get the sense that we were already moving in that direction anyway. Yeah, so, we yeah. so what, what do you say then to, to, to the theater owners and, and, and the people that, that show your films? Well, it, it, I mean, look, there's no, there's no upside for them to the day and date thing you're talking about, but that, that was, that has been in the works for a long time. That's been the topic over the last almost 10 years is like, and you know, let's be honest for most movies, like I could take this film. If I were really lucky, I might get a night at um, at a cinema like an art cinema in Toronto or in New York, if I could bring the actors to the place and make a like an event out of it, but th there's no way the film would make any money uh, in just any kind of regular way. The only films that that would that really belong in theaters today, I'm not saying belong because I, I think every film actually is a better experience in a room full of people on a big screen with proper sound. I mean that's amazing, right? But financially speaking, the bottom line is, you know, those, those tentpole films will continue to, to draw a crowd. But, you know, we were struggling. My entire career, I've been struggling to get box office out of movies. I mean, it's tough. But you do it because it gives the film, it always gave the film a kind of a moniker, that sort of stamp of being a theatrical movie. Um, you know, you, you always had that as a kind of uh, prerequisite by, by certain funders. You know, it, it makes the film sexy you know but now uh, don't hold your breath the, the small films aren't their their theatrical release is the is the film festival and but, now that's going away <laughs> but 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 do you think in a way in in spite of all the uptick in streaming that we're seeing you know once the pandemic is is over and you yeah. know, we're able to go again do you think we could actually see an, an increase in people going to the theater only because they, yeah. they, they want to enjoy that, that social experience again? Oh, I, I hope so, Dan. I hope so. I think so. I think live theater will come back in a big way for sure. Uh, Cause that's an irreplaceable experience. I, I, I mean, I love the cinema. It's my living, it's my world, but uh, you know, when you go to a play, and you see that performance happening right in front of your eyes and it's live and it's, mm, when it's good, it's great. It's a great experience. And it's, it's worth spending that money, you know? Uh, when, when going to a film with your babysitter costs and the, you know, the booze and the whatever, and suddenly you're looking at like a hundred bucks for the night, you, you know, man, that's like opera tickets where a live orchestra the ballet, a live theater, or a movie, you, you know, the movie can't be that much, you know? 
but I'll always go. I can't wait to go back. I mean, I just, I don't know. I probably should have uh, uh, before now. There was Tenet was out. I thought, yeah, that's one I should just go see. You should go see. But I, I don't know. I just haven't. And it's true that we're busy and it's so easy to sit here and, and watch anything you want to watch. How, how has a digital lifestyle, which I guess we're sort of all in now, yeah. how has that altered your relationships with either fans or, or, or even the media? Well, it's definitely isolating. You've got to do a little more work to sort of, um, like I used to use the film festival run of any given movie to help. It's actually one of the ways I've always generated new work in a way, not directly so much as indirectly. For example, I would go to Berlin with one movie and I'd have meetings and, you know, showing stuff and talking about new projects. And it was like a business thing, you know, the, the European film market and all this stuff. But, you know, out of it, there would always be some dinner or some chance encounter, you know. And one year I met a really interesting young woman and she got telling me about her father's cafe in this neighborhood and the stuff that they do and just, you know, her life. And she was a mix of Turkish and German and talked about race and about, you know, about refugees and immigration in Germany and I just was I'm so interested in this stuff and so out of it came a project you know and that that kind of traveling in encounters uh, interacting with uh, other filmmakers with uh, actors with or just just regular people like just the stuff you see when you wander the world that's pretty that's a lot of inspiration comes from that I don't get inspired uh, flipping through Instagram or, you know, looking at the New York Times. I mean, it's it's OK. You know, speaking of inspired, I see a lot of similarities with Inner City with a film compared to like fathers and daughters or, or yeah. mothers and sons. Okay. And, you know, the media always talks about, uh, you know, a, a style, you know, mm -hmm. or, you know, this is, you know, this is Carl style, or this is Adam Agoyan style, or this is sure. Bruce McDonald style. Yeah. Do you, do you feel that, that you've, that you, that you have a certain style? Is, is, is that a fair way for, for people to approach a craft? I definitely, I definitely am happiest, Dan, when I'm, I'm happiest when I'm, when I feel like I'm onto something kind of new and I don't quite know what's happening. I don't quite know how it's going to go. And that feeling of risk with the unknown, the, the, the exploration, that's where the experimenting comes from. It's not like it's not an experimental film, but the way in which I'm approaching the material is a little bit of an experiment for me personally. I get supercharged by that. I do. Like the mothers and daughters, uh, fathers and sons films, that kind of run of films, which I did three but they were very similar. Yeah, they were very similar in that I would identify people I really liked and wanted to work with. And then I'd spend time with them and together we'd mine all this stuff. Now, in those cases, I wrote scripts, but the scripts were born out of the, the you know, the, no, I didn't. I did a lot of improv. Sorry, we did, we improvised. It was the same thing. We did a, like we do an outline. So we kind of established the, the setting, the parameters, and then the actors would kind of go to town and then I'd be just like shooting and guiding and trying to steer things around uh, performance wise. But just, you know, I mean, actors love that stuff and you play to their strengths. You know, I think that uh, that's what I see with these young women because a lot of them have no experience, Dan. Like some of the, the women in this film are, are, are like not done anything, you know, 
but I was taking it like as a challenge. I'm not, I don't care what's on your resume. Like a young uh, woman from Mexico, who's the, the, the Hispanic character, she's, you know, talking about her friend and, you know, they're, they're wandering around together, whatever. I mean, that the girl who plays her friend is actually her sister in real life. She's not an actor at all. Uh, I kept her so close to her reality uh, that uh, she's just so natural. And I, I just thought she was amazing. I just loved having her out, you know, and she was so, just so easy, easygoing, not acting. And like, I started acting this year. I, 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 I put myself in one of my own movies, which is the one I'm working on right now. It's not out yet. I'm not, not done. Now, I don't really want to be an actor. It's not some like deep passion of mine. I, I don't consider myself any good at it. But what I noticed from the experience of playing a role, it's not like a small role, it's a supporting role, but it's, you know, I'm in a lot of scenes. The best acting for me, no acting. There's no acting going on. This guy's just like, that's Carl. I mean, yeah, he's playing a character, but that's like the real me, just talking shit to the camera or being kind of pissed off because he's hungry, whatever. I love that stuff. Like, I, and when I see actors like stuck in my dialogue, because I, you know, I write a lot of my movies, it drives me crazy. I just want them to throw it away. Sometimes the training and all that stuff, it's in your way. You know who taught me that uh, as well was uh, not to name drop, but Bruce Dern. I did this movie with Bruce Dern, and he's known for improvising. He's he's old. But he's also, he's got this real rep. Not everyone likes it. Like not everyone can handle Bruce Dern because he, he, he's like, if he, if he, you don't let him do his thing, he's not interested in working with you. He calls it the Dernsey. And even in, 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 the, in the, you know, uh, sorry, Tarantino movies, you watch Bruce Dern's scene. Tarantino doesn't even know exactly what Bruce is going to say because he's just like, he just gets into this space where he feels in the moment. I'm going to say this because this is what my feeling is in the moment. This is my truth in the moment. And that's, I think that's gold. I love that stuff. I, I know you, you also have a, a cameo uh, in this film in her city and you, oh, yeah. you, you cameo as a director, yeah. uh, you know, get, giving sort of notes. Um, yeah. we, we, how did that come about? Was that a bit of just like, like an in-joke kind of between you and the team? I mean, and it's also easy, right? Like there are certain things you gotta, you, I mean, you gotta know that my approach to this whole movie was so fast and loose and so lo-fi that it's just these kinds of things make sense because everyone like, I'm literally that, so that scene where the girls are doing this like uh, this stage musical thing, whatever. I didn't know what we were gonna be doing. I'm not a musical guy. Uh, and I, I had just a, a, you know, a gang of young high school students show up at this theater that I'd rented. So I had all the, the elements and then I had to kind of put them together. But, you know, no one had, there was no like, this is the play. And this, so I was doing this shit anyway, just like I am right now. I was just talking to them about where they needed to be and what they needed to do. And we worked out some miming and shit that they were going to do and then it just seemed like a natural part of the, the thing for me to just continue behind camera as this mouthy irritating guy you know you you, you mentioned bruce dern and uh, you have worked with you know a, a few big stars yeah. over the years when you're working you know with somebody who who's known and somebody who maybe has their own 
method or, or, or way of working. How does that change your approach as a director? Well, you know, if someone, uh, if someone has a gift and they want to use it uh, for the betterment of your movie, uh, you should take it. You know what I mean? You should, you should, you should just be like, Oh, thank you. That's wonderful. And you know, the problem is, and the, the problem happens only when you get a Bruce Jern and there, so in, in the film I did with Bruce Jern, his, he's playing opposite Anthony Michael Hall and a bunch of scenes. Now, Anthony Michael Hall, whom you remember from, you know, Breakfast Club and all these, when he was a young guy, like, you know, he comes with uh, like a lot of history and a lot of experience, but a certain kind of experience. And now let's just say that, um, you know, flying off the cuff, improvising, loose, it's not his comfort zone, you know? Um, so you got to find that happy place where one actor's kind of just throwing down and the other actor's got to kind of, you know, so, so, so you're protecting one a little bit from the other in, in some ways. And so I think, you know, the job, especially with, you know, famous people and sometimes with big egos, sometimes not, it depends, but you know, you got to be ready for that. You, you know, you've got to protect them too and be like their advocates, you know, um, but you embrace what they what they bring and what their strengths are, you know, everyone, I, I mean, it's something I'm really learning, God, you learn shit, even though you, you, know, you can do this forever and still be learning all the time. Everyone's got something to say, everyone, and everyone's got something they're really good at. And you just have to, you gotta find it. And if you can find it, you, you can make something interesting. And, um, you know, in the film, in her city, there's 17 stories. I actually shot 19. So I had to cut two. Two, I just decided I can't, it doesn't work. I mean, I, I can only stretch so far. They just, it just, they just didn't work. So many reasons, but whatever, I won't go into it. But, but I tried really, really hard to keep everyone in the movie, to give everyone as much as I could. But sometimes it's two minutes. You know what I mean? Like that, that's, that's what you got. This is, this works for two minutes. For four minutes, I want to kill myself. For six minutes, I'm I'm turning the channel. You know what I mean? But for an audience, what's great is that you get in the rhythm pretty quickly, and you go. You may hate the first woman, uh, but you'll put up with her because she's you know a few minutes, and then there's another one comes along, and it's totally different. And then after uh, you know after about ten minutes, you kind of know that this is a the, a little bit the rhythm's a little bit different, and you you'll always get a little like reward if you kick around. Uh, your, your, your zoom background is the, uh, Aurora Borealis, uh, <laughs> you know, and I know here in Victoria, we're working on a series and, and people are starting to realize, I think how, just how scenic this yeah. city and, 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 right. and this, in this part of the country is, but, but in terms of being a, a, a filmmaker in Canada, and especially one that's an indie filmmaker, yeah. where do you think this, this country is in terms of, uh, accessibility and, and, you know, in, you know, people that don't have the money being able to to make art. Well, I mean, maybe it's not a great analogy, but I have a nephew who went to film school. You know, he just he just graduated. Uh, he he saved up his money. He was planting trees. He bought himself uh, some some small you know affordable uh, SLR equipment. He he takes it up to the tree planting camp with him. 
he makes a 15, maybe 20 minute documentary about his experience with the, the planting camp and tree planting in general. He, he sort of made his girlfriend kind of the main voice sort of character in the movie. It's a little doc. It's so good. You know, it really is. And it's not just because he's my nephew. I mean, it's just, it's beautiful. It's thoughtful. And it's so interesting. It's so well made. You know, he, he taught himself how to use a drone. So he's got really beautiful altitude shots. And, but it's, you know, what I'm saying is that there, there are barriers, right? You've got to have access, you got to have some kind of access, but that, that barrier is getting smaller and smaller. Let's be honest. You know, I mean, I have a friend who ran out and bought himself a, you know, a hundred dollar gimbal that fits on his uh, iPhone. Uh, and then he, he, he bought another $150 lens adapter, which puts the, the, the iPhone into a, 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 like a, an anamorphic frame. So the gimbal gives him stability. He's running around. He's showing me night, this night sequence of a piece from his film shot in 4K. And you know what? It's incredible. And, and so and these are people like they're, they're, you know, they're, they're smart enough to figure out how to do these things differently. But really, when someone says, oh, you know, yeah, there are barriers to directing studio pictures, for sure. You, you can just step onto that. Uh, and maybe you can say even there are barriers to doing like episodes of Riverdale. Probably there are. But are there really significant barriers that keep uh, people who are uh, determined to tell a story, uh, keep them away from telling that story? I don't think so. Might be difficult to get people to see that story. But even that I'm kind of questioning now because really, frankly, I mean, you can take, you can, you know, squirrel away two to $5,000 and you can put something on screen that's pretty great if you want to. Yeah. So what stops people is, uh, I think that people have this, uh, uh, my industry's full of ego and there's a certain ego in big stuff. Like if it's, if for it to be a real film, it has to be, you know, it has to be a big film. It has to, has to come with trucks and, you know, expensive gear and lunches and all this crap. I've been on those sets. I've those, you know, I've done a lot of movies that way. If I had to choose, I mean, it's all about making a living too, right? But if I had to choose, like, what is my most favorite way to work? Small is beautiful. It is beautiful. Cause what's really there. It's the idea that it's the performance. It's just not about, you know, my, my latest example of irritation was the show, The Queen's Gambit, because, you know, beautiful show, pretty engaging, watched it all. But in the end, you know, no one behaves in these shows like they would in the real world. You're as addicted to drugs and, and, and booze as that poor girl. You don't just suddenly kind of step off of that train to win some big um, happily ever after chess prize. Sorry, just it's bullshit, you know? Yeah, you, you know, you, you mentioned barriers and you stated why you, you had 17, you know, stories about 17 women yeah. uh, in your film. Where are we not only in the country, but in, in the industry as a whole in terms of removing barriers for, you know, female filmmakers or indigenous filmmakers or seeing more LGBTQ stories. I think it's the greatest time in the history of Canada, really, to be an indigenous filmmaker, to be a, 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 a person of color, to be a, to be someone with a, with a, who's traditionally been on the other, you know, the other side. 
it's a great time. The trick is, uh, and it's a, it's a big if, it's a big trick. There, you know, it's hard to go with no education and no experience and no access all the way into access, access, access. It, it, it's not enough to just be indigenous. You know, it's hard. You've got to know how to do this stuff. Um, but even from the point of view of mentorship, like the, the film I'm working on right now, I, mean, I, I think it's a great story uh, because it says a lot about access. It was a, a woman I met. I cast her in a little thing I did for the CBC. It's a thing about refugees. I cast this woman because she was great. She just walked in, did this audition. I loved her. And the role was for to play a, a young woman from Zimbabwe who was a refugee, came to Canada. She and it was really like a vignette. It's on CBC Gem. It was a TV series for like a like a web series. Anyway, I love this woman. Uh, she was great actor, super interesting. And she she wanted to meet up after we finished the show and just pick my brain about some things. And she was telling me she was interested in filmmaking and, you know, really wanted to kind of go deeper into the process, whatever, you know, she's thinking about this, thinking about that. And I just said, I'll work with you. What do you, what do you, what do you want to do? What are you working on? So we started this project together, which we shot in the, I guess in the summer, right around pandemic time, June, July. And it's, uh, you know, it's not entirely like a true telling of her life story or whatever, but it's like using her experience as the foundation for the story. We wrote a script about a, a, a family of Zimbabweans who were here in Vancouver. This woman is the mother. She's got her mother and her daughter in the film. So it's three generations and she's just trying to cope, just trying to like hold down her job and get her kid to school and deal with shit. And shit goes sideways for her. So it's, 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 you know, it's kind of a, sad tale in some some ways but man the acting's amazing because they're not acting <laughs> i got a real i got real people playing themselves and it's um it's delightful and what's really been cool is the the woman she's also the associate producer of this city film her name is rumbi muzofa she's uh she's like my protege you know she's this young African dynamo with like something to say, who knows that in order for her to tell her story, she's got to learn some of the ropes. And so she's helping me, but it's, a, it's like an amazing two-way street because she's helps me, I'm helping her. Uh, we're both kind of enjoying the process and, um, and I get to share her perspective. Uh, she gets to share some of my knowledge about, you know, how to, not cross the axis, <laughs> whatever, you know, editing, whatever. It's, it's kind of mind blowing because you can, you can run all the bureaucratic programs you want, but what you really hope for is that change happens because it's meaningful, because people want it to happen, not because they're being legislated for it to happen. And I think that's where it gets difficult because sometimes people feel threatened by legislation when things are legislated to change when bureaucrats say no we must have x number of women or we must have x number of non-white you know whatever and that you know that can 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 be feel like really uncomfortable but you got to give people experience you got to give them a chance right you know I, I i've spoken to a few poc filmmakers actors whoever and some of them are of the opinion that they 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 want that thing that identifies them removed so you know they don't want to be an indigenous 
director. They just want to be a director who happens to be indigenous or, you know, they don't want to be a gay black actor. They just want to be an actor who happens to be black and and gay. I hear that. that. I hear you. Like, that's a powerful truth. Like, you know, years ago, I started a a movement. It's probably like you were probably like a, a kid at the time. But I started this movement. It was it was called the Citizens Coalition for the Protection of Canadian Cinema. I was like making a big pompous statement, and I did a presentation to the then sitting minister who was touring around, reviewing the cultural departments and trying to figure out, you know, what do we do? What do we do? And my beef, because I had been to Korea a bunch of times, and I saw what screen quotas had done for the cinema business in Korea. I mean, Korean cinema owes its life. So you know the great Oscar-winning film from last year owes its life, its very existence to screen quotas in Korea, man. Screen quotas undoubtedly transformed that country's film industry, no question in my mind. So I felt, this is like early 2000s, I felt like, you know, if we had a quota system where theaters, broadcasters, now streamers were obliged to play Canadian content, Canadian content would become part of the appetite of the nation, just the way it did with music. I mean, it, it's a no-brainer, right? But everyone was like, no, we don't want to be seen as Canadian filmmakers. We just want to be respected as filmmakers. You know, so it's the same problem. But it, I mean, this is why there, I mean, there are quotas right now for hiring women, for hiring people who aren't white. And the reason why there are quotas is that it actually, it works. Yeah, you get some people who maybe are there for the reasons that would be questionable to some, but they get some experience and then they come around again and they've actually know what they're doing and they've actually got stuff to say. And, you know, like, man, you got to give people a chance. But I actually think um, I like what's been happening with me on this kind of mentorship thing because it it wasn't like a formal program I signed up for. It was just this organic thing that happened to me based on my curiosity and hers. And a friend, we're friends. I mean, we're a different generation, but it's so great. It's really nice. I know her husband, I know her kid, because her kid's in my movie, <laughs> you know what I mean? And I just, I sort of feel like, wow, I learned something. And every, and she does my social media, because I can't, because I'm so <laughs> How do you think though, you know, given the fact that the, the term multiculturalism is actually, embedded in Canada's constitution in a way, you know, yeah. saying we are yeah. a multicultural society. And even in, in cinema, you, you know, you sort of got the everyday Canadian look, you know, it's sort of the, the, the white Canada, then you've got the French Canadian cinema, which is very powerful, and you've got the indigenous cinema, and then you've got the Atlantic Canada, you know, so you've, you've got sort of those three distinct ones, and then everything else. How yeah. is having sort of multiculturalism as part of our you know, how, how we talk about ourselves, uh, how much of that is part now of our cultural identity? I kind of think in a, for me anyway, it kind of always was, you know, I mean, look, I don't know where your family came from, but mine weren't here for hundreds of years. You know what I mean? We, a bunch of European mutts from Germany who came over with nothing and kind of started farming. And, you know, so I, I just feel like you know, the only people who really have an entitlement to the land are the indigenous people. Uh, but, but you know, think about reconciliation. It takes time. Hollow words aren't enough. It takes time. It takes a steady hand and it takes action, you know? So, I mean, it's such a big topic, but culture plays a role. Culture plays a role in shaping perception. But please, 
don't just put a, a room of good looking shampoo commercial cops together in a precinct, one from every culture, the best looking African-American, the best looking Asian-American, the best looking, you know, fill your, fill your quota. I mean, that fucking shit drives me crazy, you know? Um, let, let's try to think more organically. I mean, I don't know, I've sat in a lot of juries and some of the best films I've seen come from these very uh, obscure places. You see these really, you know, truthful tales told by people about their communities, their spaces, their places. I mean, that was what The Fast Runner was. The Fast Runner was this kind of mind-blowing cultural experience, you know? But it wasn't like, it didn't come out of legislation. It just came out of great storytelling. And it was named, I think, the greatest Canadian film ever made. I mean, it's a great film. It's a very yeah. cool. And I, I, I it's a total just... digital film, right? It's like, yeah. It's the, actually, at that time, it was almost the stupidest technology to use. And yet they used it with such pride. The most kind of uh, forward digital uh, uh, materials that they could use at that time were used to make that movie. And, and it's, it's kind of awesome. There's something awesome about it. You know, in, in, in this age of, of digital technology that we use to make films, you know, whether it's an iPhone or even a tablet, yeah. is, is there still a place for, you know, people like Tarantino who says, you know, I'm going to make, I'm making a film on film. Yeah. Well, I mean, damn, if I could make film on film, I would. Definitely I would. I, I have a, a son who's in art school and uh, my wife and I gave him one of our old cameras. You know, we had a, an old SLR, you know, sitting around just like beautiful old Zeiss lenses and just, you know, old school. So he got it tuned up, dusted off, took it out. I had to show him how to load the film in the camera. I had to give him a little quick crash course and, you know, exposure, shutter speed, you know, whatever, all the like the little, you know, the basics. This is how you expose this film. So he goes out, he fucks up one roll, then he gets the hang of it, he does a roll, and then he goes and he makes these prints. And, oh my God, I, I, I can't say it enough. There's something about the way a, a piece of film negative uh, exposes the nuance of it. I, I, I was floored. I just was like, oh God, I missed this. No sheen. It has this kind of glow and it gives it kind of a, it's a nostalgia. There's a kind of nostalgia there. Um, but you can't do the kind of films that I'm making that way. You, you know, you just can't. There's just too much money wrapped up in film. And you know, I like, I, on balance, I like the freedom that the new technology gives you. It's like this low risk, free, mad approach i think it's cool you know we're, we're seeing a lot of these these studio films just getting you know bigger and bigger budgets everything's more inflated you know there was a there was a film i think was like something like 380 million dollar budget or whatever wow. um and i'm not saying there's there's not a place for those but do you find that you know having a smaller budget having certain or more restraints on a film or you know actually breeds better creativity because you you, you sort of you, you have to find you have to improvise and, and find workarounds yeah 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 it does it does for sure but i i, I mean it'd be nice to the, i mean the worst part of like low budget filmmaking isn't the technology or the i, I mean i i don't mind 
personally, I'm all about like I'm I'm fine with like run and gun. I'm fine with you know like little or no lighting. I don't even care that much about locations and stuff. You know, there's always someone's apartment and whatever. But what what would be nice is to just be able to pay people a little better. You know, if you could keep the kind of simplicity going. Problem is, as soon as paychecks go up, then all those things come into play. And you know, I'm a I'm in all the unions. You know, I'm a Writers Guild, Directors Guild, IATSE camera, like all these unions, you know, but the honest truth is, um, you know, their job, the, the job of the union is to bring the, be the best uh, working conditions and, and finance uh, to the table for their membership, you know, that shit's not, doesn't have any relationship to this indie world of filmmaking, it just doesn't, the two just don't go together, you know, and, um, you know, trailers and makeup and hair and, and, and you know, and, and fanciness and, and, you know, the ego that goes along with, you know, how big is my trailer and how much does my first class ticket cost and all that stuff like that, that shit just, just none of it shows up on screen, you know, I, I don't know. So to me, you know, it's all bullshit. What do you, what do you think the, the, the future holds for the film industry, you know, both in how we make it and, and, and how we consume it? Wow. I think it, it has gone this way for a while and it's continuing. So I'll say uh, higher and lower, you know, bigger and smaller. Uh, the middle class is really gone. The middle class right now in Vancouver, if you say like medium sized, smallish to mid sized budget range, uh, the work that's being done in Vancouver is 100% uh, TV movie like the, the actual thoughtful, interesting, independent cinema that's, that's, that's funded at that level. And I'm talking like in the, anywhere from like 1.5 million to 3 million, this sort of range. Yeah. This is few to none. Most independent films are well under a million dollars now. Most are under 500,000 now, you know, because that's just how it goes, you know, but but the 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 two million dollar pictures are, you know, Christmas movies, you know, Disease of the Week, Woman in Peril, you know, the stuff that you see being shot around town. And then the big stuff is the streamers, right? Which is uh, which is series, 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 series. And then there's you know some giant movies out there too. Do Do you think we could see an increase in in independent cinema at all, just because, you know? everyone you know lost money because of the uh, the pandemic so we're gonna have to people want to people want to be filmmakers like everyone wants to be a filmmaker it's the greatest job right but think about it this way and i, I got a lot of kids none of them are none of them are, are looking to be filmmakers it doesn't seem you know but you no know, just my nephew is the only one i see on my kind of familial horizon of another generation thinking oh this is a good idea the truth is when you start out you'll do anything to make a movie there's nothing you won't do you'll give blood you'll you'll do anything you know you're, you're, you're just you're, you're you're kill yourself to do it and it's not about the money it's just about doing the best work that you can and you'll and if you're smart you'll you know make friends with the right people and you'll have the t understanding of the technology and you'll work as hard and long as you can to make the best thing that you can and then you get the taste of something you know say it, it works you make a short you make a little indie feature something happens you know and this is my story man I, I my first movie which was made out of like blood 
was, uh, you know, was blood and short ends, you know, was uh, short ends were the ends of the rolls he used to throw away from big sets. And I used to be a film loader. I would collect them. And I had a fridge full of these damn little pieces of 100 foot, 200 foot loads. And I made an entire movie on these things. But I still had to pay lab costs and all this stuff. I mean, it was a kid killed me, almost killed me. But then that movie got invited to a great festival and then it won a big jury prize. And it was like, holy shit, that sets you going. But after a while, you know, you want more. You don't want to like have to, you know, raid the kitchen uh, for, for the, the short ends. You want to be able to pay people better. You want to, you know, so you, you, you know, you, you want to step it up. And, and, the, and the, the, the problem is that we have a lot of financial support and interest in getting people started, you know, supporting promising young artists who have like potential. It's like looking for new voices. You always hear these kind of programs. Everything's about new voices, new voices. Well, new voices become experienced voices and then experienced voices either are supposed to either make it in the big show or just get the fuck out of the way. You know, there's very little uh, a career space for people who don't make the leap from new voice to giant production. I mean, lots do, you know, but I mean, lots, lots do and some don't want to. You know, because actually, in my humble opinion, directing an episode of Riverdale, even with all the bells and whistles and toys and prettiness of a show like that, you know, no disrespect to uh, people who love Riverdale, but it's just, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. This is not, this is not cinema. It's just not. It's beautifully made, but, you know, so are chocolate cakes, you know? So I guess what I'm saying is that you know, Adam McGoyan was a Canadian filmmaker, was one of my heroes, a man whose career I observed carefully, watching him take steps. But Adam never managed, I mean, even though he got an Oscar nomination and he did get close, he never managed to become a fully loaded studio director. He always stayed in the independent world. And the reason is that's his sensibility. And I'm saying that world, the world that Adam kind of represents and the world that I some, in some smaller way represent that kind of middle, middle place where the films aren't huge, but they're not, you know, rock bottom anymore. And that, but that market has dried up. That market is tough. You know? I, uh, I know you have two other films in the works. You sort of briefly mentioned uh, Evelyn, which is the, the, one, the one that you're in and the one that's in post. And then I know you have uh, uh, another one out as well called, uh, or you, that you're starting called Remedial Ed. Uh, oh, yeah, Remedial Ed. Can you tell us anything about those two projects? Well, Remedial Ed's a, a, a movie I'm making with an American producer that I met in L.A. He's really great. He did The Kids Are All Right. That was a, a really, I thought, great Mark Ruffalo movie from a bunch of years ago. But, you know, uh, Todd, his name is Todd, was a, you know, is a really successful producer. And he thinks, uh, you know, he's very ambitious and he's got that kind of drive to get us into that world that gate so we see the film being not a huge film but we want we, you know we want to we want to attack that that place where you can kind of make a film of a certain scale or level that you're able to kind of reach into the kind of more of the mainstream it's a drama kind of a comedic drama it's really personal and actually it's a really small movie and i could probably make it really small but i'm trying to make it in a slightly elevated way which means Movie star, movie star, movie star, movie star. And that is tough. 
takes time, you know? And um, yeah, we haven't been able to figure it out. Like Anthony Michael Hall wanted to play the role. I did a film with him and we're friends. And so, we, you know, we talked about it. Um, so that's a possibility, but you know, ooh, it's tough. You need someone who really kind of reaches into the zeitgeist and that's, uh, that's a difficult thing to get. Um, and, and that's why I've been doing uh, these little pictures, you know, because I, I, can, I, don't, I just don't have to wait around um, for all the, the, the horses to line up, you know. What, you know, you're, you, you, you're mentoring uh, somebody right now. What advice would you give to young aspiring filmmakers? Well, I think you got to make stuff first and foremost, but then I think you also have to, like, I find sometimes, I mean, maybe it's like the impatience of being young and I was young and impatient too, I suppose, but it really does help to learn some stuff from people who are out there who are, who have the experience. So if you can get on like a kind of mentory, interny kind of role in something, like one of my producers from the past who was really one of the best producers I've ever worked with, who went on to direct his own stuff. And he's primarily directing now as a, a guy that I made a bunch of movies with named Jason James. And uh, I always call him JJ, but JJ was a good example of this. He came out of film school. He, he jumped onto a, a bunch of films that were shooting at the time to really learn the process from the people he knew, he could give him access, you know? So he became like intern, producer's assistant, director's intern, like whatever he could kind of find his way into to study the craft. And, um, and, and, you know, he, he parlayed all of that into his own film career, which is, you know, awesome. I mean, that's what you have to do. So, you know, it's like a two-way street, but you also have to make shit. You can't just wait around for someone to hire you, which is what I see some people doing, you know? And, and again, no disrespect, but the, the doing an episode of some kids TV show on Disney, whatever, is, is a good paycheck and bravo for you but that's not the same as being a filmmaker. Yeah, I, I find it interesting, you know, you, you mentioned your advice is to, to get out there and make shit. And yet you also prefaced <laughs> this interview by saying you don't understand TikTok, which is exactly people who are getting out there and making shit. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, you know well, since... I, I, just to qualify, I, the TikTok that I've seen is mostly people like dancing around uh, really short stuff and, and it just seems like it's inane like there's no that's just what I've seen so I mean maybe there's some really bold TikTok work no. so so I mean I don't know if you know Sarah Cooper but she's she's this comedian who became famous on TikTok for she's this black woman and she um, did these videos Sarah, where she, what Sarah Cooper, Cooper I believe her name is and so yeah. she made these videos where she basically lip syncs Trump or lip dubs Trump and, and his speeches and it's hilarious, you know, um, and then she had a Netflix show that didn't quite work out, but you know, so there's someone who, cool. who um, but does that, you know, this, this idea that, that, you know, we have to make stuff. So does that mean you think we, we should make stuff that has some sort of meaning behind it? Well, meaning to you, like, I, I think what I, what I take exception to a little bit, I mean, in a way it's kind of an ironic, maybe stupid thing to say, but something about, social media and the need for affirmation kind of puzzles me. But then again, uh, when one screens one's movie at some festival in life, you know, and you watch an audience react to your movie favorably, that's affirmation. And, you know, affirmation feels good. It does. Like when you have a killer screening and people are like, 
you know, invested time in your movie and they really dig it and they tell you how much they loved it and you hear them laugh or whatever, that's kind of affirmation. It's great. So maybe that is akin to, you know, followers on Instagram or TikTok or whatever, the more people that are kind of liking your stuff, they're affirming you. And that's the version of kind of audience appreciation. I don't know. Um, but I, I do think that it's important to do, uh, to go out and make stuff that, I, I make films so I can explore ideas, so I can answer questions I have about the world. So going back to inner city, I, I had questions about what young women are thinking about and, what, and where uh, the culture of young women is in a way. And then to, to, to try to answer those questions or explore that idea, I needed to kind of cast a broad net. And what I noticed without overly generalizing, I noticed that there, you know, there's a lot of social media stuff comes up. Uh, a lot of anxiety comes up. A lot of body image stuff comes up. A lot of who am I, where do I fit in and what am I going to do? Family, culture, race, fuck man, all this stuff comes up, you know? And it's, it's kind of awesome to see that these aren't new things. These things have been around forever, but they're spinning in new ways by the virtue of the technology and the moment that we live in. But man, just being engaged in caring about the idea that you're setting out to make a film about, not just for the sake of getting followers. I, I can't stand that word influencer. I just hate it. You know, it, it didn't strike me until we were doing this interview, but it, it, I look at you, a lot of your films, like In Her City and, you know, Brothers and, sis, brothers and Sisters, Fathers and Daughters, and it, it strikes me that in, in a way they were sort of early mumblecore films, you know, oh, yeah. these, yeah. The, the, these types of films that are, you know, lower budget, that are very sort of heavy on, on dialogue, maybe not huge on plot, that are, that are very character driven, and mumblecore uh, is a genre that we're seeing more and more of. The, the late great Lynn Shelton was a great um, mumblecore filmmaker. What, what, what do you make of that? Do you do you, do you consider yourself a, a pioneer in that regard at all? I think I was doing that stuff at the time too. Yeah, Blaine Thurrier. Do you know Blaine? I think you know Blaine. He he talks about that a lot because he he made a film right in the mumblecore moment called Low Self Esteem Girl. I remember this is so long ago. But uh, Low Self-Esteem Girl was a really, really lo-fi movie that you almost had to look at twice before you sort of saw or could appreciate the, the cinematic mind behind it. Because at first glance, it was kind of hard to hear, a little bit like shitty to look at. <laughs> you know, it had this kind of, you could be dismissive of it. But I look at it now and, uh, and Blaine was of the moment, man. He was, he was in Canada, uh, but you know, but the, the difference between Blaine and the, and the Mumblecore heroes is that the Mumblecore he heroes went on to have major Hollywood careers, you know. It doesn't always happen, but you know, Greta Gerwig was a Mumblecore girl, you know. Yeah, I mean, du Duplass brothers, I think, are, are the gold standard for, yeah. for the, Mumble, the Mumblecore movie. And those guys are gold, man. There's, I mean, I love the movie um, uh, that, uh, that, that was fairly recent uh, about the was Adam Sandler was the lead and he played a, the Safdie Brothers movie. Did you see this movie? Oh, I haven't seen it, but Uncut yes. Uncut Gems. Uncut Gems. Damn. Like to me, to make movies like, so Uncut Gems is kind of my style of filmmaking, but kind of ratcheted up, like with a little more resource and just a little more, a little more of everything. But it's got, it's got the same kind of, friction-based, real-time, slightly heated. I mean, it's a, I can't 
compare myself to that exactly, but just as an inspiration, you know, this kind of filmmaking, I think it's great. I think it's, it's really of the moment, but it's rare still because most people kind of don't want to do that. They want to sit in this pod of, I, I think film, filming, filmmaking of the moment looks a lot more like um, uh, the Queen's Gambit than Uncut Gems. You know, you, you mentioned you, uh, you know, you were interested in, in, in Berlin, you know, yeah. as, as part of this story. I'm curious, do you think we, we could see more films in, in sort of the, the in her city universe, uh, you know, kind of like we did with fathers and daughters and brothers and sisters and maybe have yeah. in, in their city or in our city? Yeah, I've got a Berlin, I, I had before the, so the virus hit and then everything just started to fall apart. Um, but I had, uh, I had five stories developing with five young women in Berlin. Um, and they were cool, really cool and really different and really interesting. And I met a young woman who was, uh, was directing and producing uh, there in Berlin. And same thing, I wanted to kind of find a way to bring my process into her, get her to help me because uh, my German language, I mean, I'm okay, I'm learning, but I'm, you know, I'm not super sharp in German, you know, but having someone of that generation uh, help me make these movies, you know, just producing with me. Um, and she introduced me to a lot of great people and, uh, and that is a very dynamic place to film in. Yeah, so I'm, I got that on my mind for sure. I just gotta get a plane ticket. What, what's maybe a story or, or a type of film that you haven't made yet that you would still like to do? I do think, I mean, this is just filmmaker ego talking, but I, I think it would be great to be able to do something in the past, just because when you do something in the past, a genuine period, you know, moment, you, you've got the, the just, it's just so much fun to use the cinematic tools to sculpt a, a, a different age, you know, I mean, that, that's kind of one of the magical things that film still does. And so, and again, I, I don't know if it's your bag, but just watching The Crown, you know, you see the 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 recreations of things. They're so well done, you know. I mean, it just takes wealth. It takes vast resources, you know. So, but I love the filmmaking of the '70s. I think there was a lot of amazing stuff in the '70s. I have a script uh, which I wrote with a, a guy down in LA, and it's a sort of a a, a little bit of our kind of homage to. Um, uh, to Midnight Cowboy. Uh, I love that era. I like those the Schlesinger uh, film. And, you know, it's edgy. It's like kind of grainy and messy. And, and the actors are imperfect. Their teeth are bad. Their hair sucks. They're, they're, you know, this was the real world. Man, I miss that shit. I, I can't stand watching stuff today when everyone's all polished and sculpted. And it just drives me crazy. It is, have we become too fake? Oh, yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Man, th this is one of the things that's so fantastic about older films. Uh, everything just, you, when someone's beautiful, they're beautiful because they're beautiful, not because they look beautiful. If that makes any sense. They're just, there's a level of, there's a distinction and you still see it in, in British stuff. You still see it in French cinema. Uh, but America has gone a little, uh, a little crazy with them. Um, yeah, I mean, take a look at some of these old stars. They just, it's surreal. Even Nicole Kidman, like, come on, what are you doing? It's 
but also you know we're i think we're aging differently because you know you look at somebody let's say john wayne for example right you you look at him at 50 years old and you look at somebody like paul rudd who's 52 and is ageless you know it's 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 a different game i think we're playing with yeah you know you're right i mean how long can will ferrell continue to play adolescent (laughs) idiots i mean that's his jam and he's so funny and I kind of love the guy, but it's just like, okay. I mean, I don't know if you saw his Icelandic thing, just whatever it was. The, 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 oh, yeah, your, your star, like Star Search or Euro, Eurovision. Eurovision, yeah. I mean, it was pretty dumb, but there was some stuff in it that was pretty funny too. It's just, you know, how long are you going to buy him as that guy? I don't know. But then, you know, that's what he does. So I just, you just go with it, I guess. But yeah, I hear you. Where are the, you know, yeah, being uh, 50 is the new 40 or whatever they say. You know what I mean? It's just, it's just ridiculous. So yeah, you get these, you still get casting where men who are really closer to 70 than 50 are out there, you know, running through the streets with their 26-year-old, you know, co-star, who's now, just to make, make us uh, all appreciate that we've changed, she's now maybe African-American or, you know, has some kind of international vibe but she's still like 26. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I remember there was a story a few years ago where uh, it was, I think it was a Bruce Willis vehicle who at the time was like 55 or something like that. Yeah. Um, anyway, or, and Maggie Gyllenhaal uh, yeah. went out for the film yeah. and she, I think she was 37. Wow. And she got told that she was too old to play the love interest of this 55 year old man. That's insane. Wow. Is do, do we have a duty as, as filmmakers to engage in market correction? If I can use that term, what does that mean to you? I I just, you know, in terms of like make, making storylines, you know, maybe a little more age appropriate or, or a little more diverse. So, you know, maybe, maybe the lead actor is 45 and the woman is 37 rather than, you know, 55 and, and, and 37. And, you know, maybe they're, maybe they're mixed race or, you know. Uh, you know I, I think it, I think it's happening. I, I like it when it happens organically. Here's an example. I mean, we all watch a lot of stuff. I like my share of really stupid shows as, as we all do. I think uh, one of my favorite shows uh, is Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I've always loved that show, man. I've watched so many episodes. I watched them over and over again. The reason why, one of the reasons why I think it's great, it actually is a stupid, funny show. It gets a little worse over time, I'll admit, you know, as anything would, I suppose. But that thing you're talking about, that correction you're talking about, is is just organic. It's just part of the show. Uh, they, make, they make jokes about it, but it's just, you know, all the stuff to do with race, with gender, sexuality, it's all in the DNA of these people. And you sit there in the precinct and you don't feel like, oh, this is one of those lame scenes where you got one of each uh, in this kind of phony baloney precinct. Uh, it's, just, it's just done so elegantly. And I, I think it just does a huge favor to the culture. Don't you? Yeah, no, the for sure. The black police captain who's also like super uptight and hilarious <laughs> and played by, you know, that guy Brower who was in, um, you know, Homicide Life on the Street. And I just think it's brilliant. You know, those showrunners, those creators are really fucking smart. They're really smart. 
so just as we wrap up here, other than Brooklyn Nine-Nine, what is a, another show or maybe a, another filmmaker who is who is changing the game, you think, or, or is doing doing good work? Well, I, I got to go back to the Safties, that that Uncut Gems. That's that's really cool. And uh, I, I started watching. I don't think her films are amazing, but there's that woman who did the film Bad Batch. It was the, I was thinking about it the other day because Keanu Reeves is in it. Uh, Ar Lily Armapur, Armapur, Iranian oh, yeah. American, did a vampire movie that was set in Tehran. I mean, she's kind of dark. And uh, this film, Bad Batch, is pretty dark. But she had Jim Carrey, unrecognizable in this movie, play a weird, like, street guy. She had Keanu Reeves play this bizarre kind of mayor of this fucking mythical town or whatever. I mean, and it, I mean, there was just some, there were some swings that were so crazy in the film. I, I mean, this was, I think it's uh, Jason Momoa is the, the, one of the main characters, but it's before he really hit with Aquaman. And uh, yeah, I mean, these are aggressive cultural shifts. They're interesting to see. Uh, still need some story work for sure. Uh, but I like that. And I like when, when actors like Adam Sandler, like change their game and play something really, they really risk, risk something playing these characters. Well, your film is uh, in her city and it's going to be playing at the Whistler Film Festival, which is virtual this year, like so many other festivals. And it's running from now until uh, December the 20th, I believe is just the full another festival. Carl Basai, thanks so much. Uh, th th this was great. Nice. Thank you for having me. No worries. And apologies for the uh, technical difficulties right at the very beginning. Oh, great. We had a long chat. It's like uh, a good life story. It was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. Thanks, man. See ya. Well, there you have it. My chat with Carl Basai. Thanks for sticking with it. If you're still here, uh, it was probably a little bit longer than maybe some of you are used to, but it feels like a like a true podcast. So thank you for that. Uh, once again, his film is In Her City, and it's uh, premiering now at the Whistler Film Festival. That does it for me today. Uh, I'm going to have three shows next week. Uh, on Monday, I will have singer-songwriter Jen Grant, who is talking about her new Christmas album, as well, filmmaker April Mullen of Below Her Mouth fame will be talking about her new film, Wander, which stars Tommy Lee Jones, Aaron Eckert, Heather Graham, and Catherine Winnick. As well, as I mentioned, Niels Muller and Sophie Harvey and Casey Novak. In the coming weeks, you will also hear from Broadway superstar Sam Harris, as well as a couple other of Whistler Film Festival interviews that are in the works. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe to Endeavors on Apple, Spotify, Google, TuneIn, Deezer, Radio Public, wherever you get your podcasts. You can visit me on social media at Endeavors Radio or the website, which needs to be updated. I know, I keep saying it. I will get to it, I promise. EndeavorsMedia.com. 
Thanks for tuning in. I will see you next time. Goodbye for now. Artists like to have a lot of sex.